Welcome to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast with your host, Jim Robinson. Hello, and welcome back to the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Robinson. Today's episode, we're going to talk about innovations in the seed industry over the last couple of decades and how they've helped America's farmers. And then looking at forward at what innovations are coming down the pipeline that are going to shape the next coming decade, decades for Americans farm, America's farmers. On today's episode, we have Harry Stein as our guest. Harry, could you go ahead and introduce yourself? Well, I'm Harry Stein from Iowa, near Des Moines. And our farm specializes in the development of seed, uh, corn and soybeans. And we've been doing this for... Uh, I don't know, between 50 and 60 years, I guess. When you get almost 100 years old like I am, it seems like uh, you've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> and Harry, he's being a little bit modest in that you've, you've certainly shaped a lot of the way the soybean industry and, and uh, uh, the corn industry has worked and operated up to date. So uh, we're glad to have you on today. So Harry, can you tell us a little bit about what innovations you've seen over the last several decades that have really helped America's farmers, particularly in the seed industry? Well, as everyone is well aware, no matter what segment of the industry you're in, in the world today, things are constantly changing and actually changing more rapidly every year. So agriculture is no exception to this. And the technology changes just in my lifetime have been tremendous. Um, so both in the seed that we plant and the technology that we use on that seed, the equipment we use with that seed, uh, the fungicides, the insecticides, everything has radically changed. And as a perfect example, uh, corn, I like to give the example, the average yield in the United States during the entire decade of the 1930s was 24 bushels per acre. And so today, as you know, we're up around 175. And those changes are all due to a combination of all of those factors we just talked about. Mm-hmm. So our, our ag community has benefited greatly from the changes in technology. All, like you said, all of those things have to work together in order to improve yields from, from that 24 bushels you mentioned in the 1930s up to the 175 or so that we're at today. How do those things work together? I mean, if, if you look at corn in particular, I mean, there, there have to be a lot of things that work together. If you look at a corn plant, uh, a hybrid from the 1930s versus a hybrid today, you're going to see a lot of differences in terms of plant architecture. And that has to be accompanied by changes in things like row spacing and uh, other management techniques. Can you touch on those a little bit? Yes. I'm not sure people realize, uh, but at the beginning of the decade of the 1930s, most of the corn was planted with horses. And so the row width was somewhere between 42 and 48 inches wide. And the corn was planted in hills at that time. And so the type of plant that you needed to maximize yields was a big, tall, floppy plant. All we farmers do is intercept sunlight and convert that sunlight uh, into food and fiber. So... Under that scenario, the plant type you needed was one type. Today, when we can plant much narrower rows and uh, have weed control options and fungicide options that we didn't have back in the 1930s. So all of these things have changed radically. Uh, And then also, I think I didn't even realize in the beginning 
uh, in that late 1920s, early 1930s, the average final plant population for corn was 7,000 plants per acre. And obviously today we're more up at 37,000 plants per acre. So this is a radical change. And I, we even see some universities doing uh, plant population studies. Well, they're almost always behind the curve because they test older varieties that were developed many years ago, mm-hmm. widely grown varieties, which seems logical to them. And they will then tell you you need a much lower population than we think the new varieties really need today. So everything is constantly changing, and you need to look at data carefully in order to evaluate what you need to be doing. That is absolutely the case. Yeah, the uh, plant populations alone, which have increased, as you said, from that that seven to 8,000 range up to the high 30s, and in some cases, even 40,000 plants or, or above, uh, you know, that just that population alone, the plants have to be adapted with a more vertical leaf architecture, uh, stronger uh, natural tolerances to different fungal infections, as well as uh, stronger roots and stalks due to the additional pressure placed on those plants at those higher populations for water competition, uh, intercepting sunlight, et cetera. So that's, yeah, that's great. How about on the soybean end? What innovations have you seen? What innovations have you and your company developed in, uh, in breeding soybeans to help America's farmers and how have those practices then evolved along with today's machinery and fungicides and different applications? Well, soybeans have almost the same story that, that corn does, and frequently people don't quite recognize it because soybeans only yield about a third as much as corn, uh, and so therefore you don't see the dramatic numbers. But again, when I was a boy, we won the county yield contest here where I live. The mm-hmm. yield was 32 bushels per acre. <laughs> And so now, as you well know, people are on a yield contest fields are getting in the 80s or 90s. You even hear some crazy numbers higher than that. But it's not unusual to see in the, in the 80s. So we're about two and a half times uh, higher soybean yields today. And the soybean complex has changed in several different ways. Again, uh, before World War II, there were very few soybeans raised in the United States. And the soybeans that were raised in that early time frame were mostly for hay. So grain was not not a big ticket item. So as the soybean acreage increased, the disease complex increased at the same time. So when you had a very low acreage of soybeans, you didn't have much disease problems. But today, with the intensity of acreage, we have, what, up around 70 million acres a year or so in the U.S.? Yep. with, with that kind of acreage, we have disease problems. So the breeding programs had to concentrate both on increasing yields and on uh, the disease complex. And yeah, with that, that's driven uh, substantially higher yields as well as uh, the soybean varieties that, that farmers plant today look radically different than they did 50, 60 years ago. And that uh, traditionally those older varieties were much, much taller, much more branching whereas today's varieties are more adapted to the narrower rows and uh, shorter with better standability and better tolerances to those diseases. Yes, again, remember, remember I'm almost 100 years old, but when I, when I was a boy, I'm a little facetious there. When, when I was a boy, we walked our soybeans because we had no herbicide, and we were in 40-inch rows, and by the middle of July, you could not walk down the row because they were tangled. Mm-hmm. Well, today we plant our beans in 10 or 15-inch rows, and you can walk down those rows almost any time. So the architecture of the soybean plants has changed radically during this time. 
And likewise, uh, back in that earlier time frame, hypocalelongation or emergence at certain temperature levels were critical. Today, we don't see that anymore. We don't even check our soybeans anymore for hypocalelongation at, at different temperature levels. So things have changed and improved significantly over the last uh, several decades. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a great point that oftentimes people don't talk about or realize. Uh, historically, with, the, with our, the J.C. Robinson Seed Company, we had a publication that I have hung up, hanging up in my office that talks about how uh, seed quality from the 50s, uh, all of our products were tested to, for emergence at 55 to 60 degrees, which was extreme cold temperatures for planting at that time. So it's, it's crazy what the differences are in today's uh, hybrids and varieties in terms of their emergence poten- uh, potentials across decades. That's very true. So we've talked a little bit about what, what those innovations were over the last several decades, being primarily the, the driving towards higher populations, higher yield potential, and the evolution along with uh, today's machinery, uh, fungicides, insecticides, uh, herbicides, tolerance traits, etc. What do you think are the innovations that are currently in the pipeline that, it's gonna, that are best going to shape the coming decades for America's farmers? Well, interestingly enough, while corn populations have gone up significantly over this time frame, soybean populations have actually gone down a bit. Great and point. if you think about that, um, there were no herbicides, so you had to plant your wheat and then these, these uh, hypocotyl emergence problems. So you had to plant at higher rates in order to make sure you had a stand and crowd out the weeds. So we're really finding today you can plant at lower rates than we did 50 years ago. Uh, Even though we have plants that have a a different canopy type, uh, incidentally, the the leaves on soybeans, if you look carefully at the varieties today compared to older varieties, are just like corn. The leaves are actually standing up Mm -hmm. on soybeans. And remember, all we're doing is harvesting sunlight. So the more leaf surface area you can get on an acre, whether it's corn or soybeans, uh, the more sunlight you can capture and the more yield you can get. So all of these, all of these things have changed and they've all gone together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously we didn't have traits uh, back 50 years ago on either corn or soybeans. And so today we think of that as just normal. Because if we didn't have uh, herbicide-resistant crops, uh, farming the, the size of farms we do and the acreage that, that farmers do today would be impossible uh, if we had to do the same things that we used to have to do. Oh, for sure. Uh, With that, that herbicide resistance, we, we've seen a little bit of a plateau on genetically modified traits. It, initially, there was the first generation of Roundup Ready corn and BT corn for corn borer. You know, we've seen the addition of uh, corn rootworm traits and some additional uh, uh, multiply stacked traits for both insect and herbicide resistance. What do you see as the future for GM traits, or do you see the, the next set of innovations coming in another form, such as gene editing or uh, more traditional plant breeding styles with accelerated technology and marker-assisted breeding and phenotyping? Well, the gene editing and and the markers, that sort of thing, is really just a modified version of traditional breeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, incorporating traits is something else. And that gets a little complicated because I think many of these things are kind of like the fox and rabbit situation. Uh, the rabbit population builds up, and then the fox population builds up, and, and the rabbit population goes back down. So some of the diseases that we have in our crops, as well as insect problems that we have in our crops, 
follow that same scenario. They will build up and then they will sort of go away Mm -hmm. after uh, they sort of destroy themselves. Uh, And then on top of that, we have, when we have a lot of BT corn, which knocks down the the, uh, corn bar population, Mm -hmm. we say, well, we really don't need it. Well, if everyone stopped using uh, corn bar resistant corn, I think the population would mushroom back up and we'd say we do have a need. So an individual farmer certainly can get away today without using uh, some of the insecticide traits that, that we're incorporating uh, because their, their neighbors are. Mm-hmm. So it, it's sort of like the flu that you see today. If, if all your neighbors are resistant, chances are you aren't going to catch it. Um, <laughs> a herd immunity effect. Correct. That's a great point in that, uh, well, it doesn't appear as though some of those GM traits have as much value today as they may have had historically. In fact, they, they probably would if we see a reduction in the, t- the overall usage of those technologies. That is correct. So historically, most of the innovations have come in the form of, of increasing yield or preserving yield, whether that's through protection against insects or uh, suppressing weeds to uh, preserve yield potential. Uh, and then breeding technology, uh, breeding and machinery uh, to help increase the uh, allowable population and, and thus yield of a farm. Uh, so these yield increases have helped America's farmers by maintaining the competitive advantage by reducing the cost of production per bushel or through a reduction in the amount of resources required to grow a single bushel. Do you view the future of innovation as uh, maintaining that focus on increasing yields, or do you think it'll come in some other way? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, as you're well aware, the the real test is what happens to the bottom line on an acre of production. Mm-hmm. So we're all trying to maximize uh, that return. And that may not be necessarily having the very highest yield. So we need to minimize the input costs and maximize uh, the beneficial yield that that mm-hmm. input cost gives us. But generally... Despite everything people say, higher yields normally are the best route to go. Now, if you're trying to do the extreme end and put on extremely high rates of fertilizer, that sort of thing, obviously there's diminishing returns and that doesn't always work. Mm -hmm. But in in general, it's very difficult to find a product that's going to maximize your income that doesn't have reasonably high end yields uh, on on your production. Exactly. So, exactly. Uh, I think I've been guilty over time of not wanting to spend money on some input or this or that. <laughs> uh, and in, in fact, we'd have been better off if we would have. Oh, that's, that's always twenty twenty hindsight when looking at that. But no, the, the yield certainly drives the, the best return on investment in the vast majority of cases. Uh, you know, there may be potentials where, potential cases where um, – either through traditional breeding or, or uh, otherwise, you may be able to find in-market uses that may uh, have a higher value than just number two yellow corn. Uh, do you think that'll become more broadly adapted within the United States or, or globally? Or uh, do you think that by focusing on the increased production of number two yellow corn, we can find additional downstream processing mechanisms to, to increase revenue? I'm not certain about that. As you know, historically over time, whether it's corn or soybeans, we've had specialty things that, as example, in soybeans have certain oil qualities. Like why even in corn, we had high oil corn, we have uh, this and that. And 
you have white corn, you have sweet corn. There's all sorts of specialty things, but they're actually a relatively small percent of the crop. And you don't see anyone raising those and becoming extremely uh, wealthy by doing so. So the probability of, of having specialty things that are, that are big volume and big income, very frankly, the data doesn't support that. That doesn't mean that it isn't good to have them. And that we, and we should constantly try to find those types of things. Commodities are the primary driver in agriculture. No, that's absolutely right. Other than local specialty needs and, and uh, contracts, that the commodities do absolutely drive things. So where do you anticipate innovation to come from in the next couple of decades? I mean, you know, historically, people will think of, of the big three as, as potentially driving some of those in, uh, innovations. But there's also startups and universities and, and other sources, too. What do you view as, uh, who do you view as generating that next generation of innovations? Well, whether it's agriculture or uh, pharmaceuticals or whatever industry you're in, uh, sometimes we have a distorted view and think that the major entities are the major players that innovate uh, the new things that we need. Frequently, you'll see that those new things, regardless of the industry they're in, actually came from individuals or small companies. Mm -hmm. And then these larger companies you're talking about saw those and acquired them and put them out as coming from that large company. But in reality, individuals and very small companies produce a disproportionate share of the innovation, regardless of the industry you're in. So I think that's true in agriculture also. So frequently the new varieties, the new breeding techniques, uh, even the new traits uh, that you see coming along frequently did not originate uh, with one of those big three that you're talking about in the case of agriculture. No, that's absolutely the case. And and like you said, that's that's true across all industries, whether it's technology, software, pharmaceuticals, et cetera. Typically the majors... uh, Lack will occasionally lack in innovation, and so they'll look to acquire those things that they, they find. So with that, is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of, of innovation for today's uh, farmers and, and maybe even tomorrow's farmers? No, but I sort of make jokes about being 100 years old, but I did starting out dealing with your grandfather. And, mm-hmm. and I just want to point out that the, the Robinson family has always been someone that we had great respect for and have dealt with for 50 years. And so you can be very, very proud uh, of the history of your company. And and we would point out that we've been extremely pleased over these many, many years to be working with your family. Thank you, Harry. We really appreciate that. And we've really enjoyed a great relationship with you, your family, and your company as well. It's been fantastic. In today's episode of, of the Field Ready podcast, we've had a conversation with Harry Stein to talk about innovation in agriculture, both historically and looking into the future. Uh, Historically, what we've found is that both in corn and soybeans, uh, breeding techniques to uh, best accommodate the shifts in machinery, farming practices, uh, inputs such as fungicides and insecticides, as well as different herbicides that have come available, have all worked together in order to increase yields uh, from the 1930s at 24 bushels per acre in corn in the 1950s and 60s at about 30 bushels per acre in soybeans, all the way up to what we see today in the 60s for soybeans and 175 in, in corn. Uh, those have come through breeding for higher population, narrower rows, increased disease tolerance, as well as the genetically modified traits that we see in today's products. In the future, 
we see, while we can't fully predict what we're going to see uh, in the future of innovation in agriculture, we do expect that these things are going to come mostly from individuals, startups, smaller companies, and then eventually work their way into the larger companies that uh, either through acquisitions, licensing, or anything else. And so with that, Harry, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it was my pleasure. And as always, be sure to tune in on the 1st and 15th of every month for new episodes. And until then, stay field ready. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Rob Seco Field Ready Podcast. Join us next time to be field ready. A Parkville Media Production.